Well, thank you so, so much, Lade, for joining me today. I'm very excited to talk about your amazing journey in life so far, everything you've, you've accomplished and done, and, and get into the work now that you're doing with, with Alpha Mundi and all the impact behind that and, and just the potential, I think, of Latin America, Africa, women across the world putting resources behind them to, to start and create businesses. I mean, it's the, the growth is endless, right? And the, the impact for both financially and, and societal is huge when we, when we add all these resources together. So before we get into to Alpha Mundi Foundation and everything that you're, you're doing now, talk a little bit about your past and your journey to get to, even to this point, because you've done some incredible things so far. So, so tell us about that journey before now. Thank you so much, Grant. I'm absolutely thrilled to join you on this podcast today. Really grateful for the invitation. I have had a pretty interesting journey, but what you'll find as a common thread is I have focused on supporting private investment and private sector participation in development. So what does that mean? When you think about improving the quality of life of people in developing countries or emerging markets, whether it's by supporting entrepreneurs, small and medium-sized enterprises, building a power plant to provide electricity, or providing water and sanitation, healthcare, education. It's really thinking about how to make all of this work sustainable in the longer term by creating a financial mechanism whereby investors can participate. Because in the long run, we cannot continue to depend on public sources of funding and also philanthropy grants because those resources are finite. But there's a lot of capital in the global capital markets. Um, investors command upwards of you know $200 trillion. So we want to be able to see a percentage of those resources flowing into these types of projects and, and companies and, and communities, but in a manner that is also attractive to the investors so they're able to earn some type of risk-adjusted return. How I got into this was almost by accident. I started my career over 20 years ago working in IT in Dallas, Texas, and very quickly realized that I wanted to do something that I felt was more meaningful and engaged with more people as opposed to sitting behind the computer all day. So I did the sensible sure. and went back to school, um, went to business school, got an MBA. And I was really inspired by two of my professors who talked about development. And that was where the spark was lit. And I realized that I wanted to be able to live in Africa, work in Africa and contribute towards development in some form or fashion. And so from there, um, I eventually made it back to the continent and uh, I've worked in various aspects of development finance, financing infrastructure, so the power plants I alluded to earlier, to advising government um, officials and public sector agencies on how to catalyze private investment, again, to finance some of these large projects, to helping to grow the field of blended finance, which really marries together this concept of public and um, private financing, but doing it in a manner that these transactions are not overly risky for private investors to come in. And this has all culminated in my current role, where I serve as the executive director of Alpha Mundi Foundation, and we are committed to strengthening the commercial viability of small and medium enterprises, both in Africa as well as Latin America. And the idea is that SMEs 
which is the acronym for small and medium enterprises. They are the job creators, um, I think, in any country, even in the U.S., if you think about it, um, all the mom and pop shops and you know a lot of the small and growing businesses, they employ people, they create jobs, they provide incomes with which people can lead a decent life. And so we want to support more of those types of entrepreneurs and companies in these emerging markets. And how we do it is by providing structured blended finance, which I um, just described, so that they're able to improve their business operations, strengthen their management capacity, understand research and development, sales and marketing. And importantly, we do this with a gender lens. So what that means is we're helping these companies realize that gender equity, diversity, and inclusion is really not just you know a corporate social responsibility project that you do on the side. It is crucial to the long-term viability of the company, but also their overall business performance. So what this means is companies that have gender diverse management teams, boards, uh, workforces, they tend to perform better and our data shows that. And we also help companies to think through product development and design. So as I, as I stated, uh, hmm. research and development is yeah. very important, but thinking about it from the perspective of a female customer, thinking about how you place right. your product or service, the types of distribution channels that you leverage to reach these customers. And through our work, what we found is that our portfolio companies actually perform better financially. Um, so they have higher revenues, they end up being more profitable, and they generate a more attractive risk-adjusted return for the investors, even as they're creating that positive social impact. So let, let me pause there. I, I know that's quite a lot that I've done. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I want to real quick just touch on the blended finance aspect of it. What makes that such a positive way that it impacts investors, but also why is it so important or what are the features about it that make it beneficial for the job creators and entrepreneurs, and then also the investor, investors. What is it about that blended finance model that makes it sort of so attractive? Well, well I want to start with a, a bit of a disclaimer to say that blended finance is not a silver bullet. So it's not a, you know, sure. all solution, but I do think that there's a lot of merits to adopting this approach. Now, why is it important? You may be familiar with the sustainable development goals. These are goals, 17 goals that the world signed up to um, in 2015, and they cover everything from gender equality, for women, uh, both genders, but really for women who are often marginalized to uh, providing electricity um, in a continent like Africa. I think it's 400 million people don't have access to electricity. It's providing you know, access wow. to education, healthcare. Um, so anyway, these goals have been adopted globally. And before COVID, it was estimated that we had a two and a half trillion, that's trillion with a T, dollar funding gap to meet these SDGs. Now, when you look at the capital that is available from governments or from public sources or even philanthropy, on average, we were seeing about 200 billion, that's with a B, flowing towards SCG related projects. Now, we need to be talking about trillions. The reality is that the public sector philanthropy just does not have the trillions. Um, where, where do the trillions sit? They sit in the private sector. Um, the global capital markets, as I mentioned previously, sure. have value in excess of 200 trillion with a T. Um, so if we're able to allocate, you know, one or 2% of that capital, um, we're easily closing the, the funding gap. Now, how do you get, the question to ask is, how do you get private investors to care 
and make investment decisions that are aligned with the SDGs. Um, it can't be philanthropy because ultimately they have a fiduciary responsibility if they're managing people's right. money. They have shareholders that they report to. They have to increase the bottom line. You know, they have to increase shareholder value. So you really can't sell it as a CSR project and expect to get those trillions flowing in. So the way that we have seen uh, to be effective is by de-risking transactions. So making them as attractive as a traditional investment. If I was to buy, you know, U.S. government um, treasury bills, um, for instance, it's a considered a low risk investment. I know what the return, you know, the coupon would be for that investment. So if you can, you know, present a project in an emerging market and tell me and show me that I can possibly earn, you know, even greater, more attractive returns without assuming an undue level of risk, then that makes it as interesting as possibly buying a U.S. government T-bill. So then I would, as an investor, I could make that um, decision. Now, how do you de-risk these projects? That's where that public sector concessional capital comes in that I, I just referred to. That concessional capital is really there because it's trying to buy the impact. So a government, a um, philanthropic organization, they're not providing funding because they're trying to make money off of it. They're doing it because they want to see water provided you know, to children. They want to see children going to school. They want to see better healthcare facilities. So they're effectively you know, buying the impact. So they're willing to take on risks and they're willing to not have their capital returned to them. Although in some cases they want it back so they can recycle it, but, you know, they're not in it for a return. So if they can mm -hmm. come to the, you know, to fund these types of projects where they're absorbing these risks that a private investor simply can't absorb, then it makes it possible for private investors to then participate. So how does this work in practice? Um, let's say I needed to borrow you know, $10 to implement this project. If I was going to a traditional uh, investor, they would consider me doing this project in this country to be very risky. So then they would hike up the interest rate because it's all about protecting right. their investment. Um, and also in the event of a loss, you know, they, they want to be made whole. Now, it becomes very expensive for me to then, you know, borrow um, if it's a, a debt investment because the interest rate is so high. And what if the project doesn't generate as much to be able to repay that loan? But if I had concessional debt, as an example, you can also have equity. If I had concessional debt, what that means is instead of, you know, whatever the interest rate is from the private investor on that amount, being 25%, maybe the first 10% of that is covered by that concessional capital. Um, and then the private investor doesn't have to then put on an additional uh, risk premium over that interest rate that makes the loan very expensive. So basically, I'm able to get this project done, attract private investment. Um, I'm doing something that has social impact, but also I can generate enough revenues and cash flows to repay the investor. Um, so they're happy because you know they're making the return that they wanted. Um, the concessional capital provider is also happy because they're seeing this project being implemented and they're seeing the impact, whether it's you know, number of uh, people who are able to access healthcare, number of people who have access to electricity or whatnot. So there are many different, I try to be very simplistic in my um, description, but there are many different sure. ways that you can structure this. Um, and so that's why it's, you know, blended finances is a, an interesting approach that I think a lot more people um, could leverage. 
talk a little bit about, I guess, some of these small businesses and job creators. How does it work? Do they find, you know, Alpha Moon Day? Are, are you guys going out and seeking them? I guess, how does, how do the opportunities come across your quote unquote desk, so to speak? Do you guys seek that work with local organizations, work with local governments? Absolutely. Um, So it kind of works both ways. It's two directional, if you will. We are a nonprofit, um, so a 501c3 um, in the U.S., and we were founded, you know, seven years ago and became operational in 2018 and have worked with companies both in Africa and Latin America, as I as I mentioned. But we're also a sister organization to a Swiss impact investor called Alpha Mundi Group. That's where the name comes from. They've been investing mm-hmm. in these markets for the last 12 years or so. They've placed about $100 million into 54 businesses. Historically, they've targeted companies that operate in, you know, renewable energy. So these are companies that provide solar home systems or, you know, solar powered products to facilitate farming at the smallholder farmer level or whatnot. Um, They've worked with companies in sustainable food and agriculture and also in financial services, which includes microfinance as well as fintech. Um, So we've also kind of worked with companies in those sectors, although we're becoming more sector agnostic as long as we can see the potential for impact. How they find us is, um, as I said, two ways. So we do some origination work. All that means is we are actually actively, you know, researching and just looking out for companies. So uh, we go to events where entrepreneurs gather, we meet companies, um, we learn about them, they share with us their corporate deck and just information about who they are. So that's one way in which we bring in pipeline. Um, We also get pipeline directly from Alpha Mundi Group because companies approach them for investments. Sometimes they're not ready for an investment. They need technical assistance. They need blended finance. So the group will then refer them to us. And so we will kind of work with them if they meet our criteria and then um, ultimately send them back to the group for an investment. And yeah, and sometimes we just get, you know, cold you know, cold calling or cold emailing where companies have heard about us and (laughs) they just send in a proposal and say, we're looking for funding. Do we meet your criteria? So it's kind of a multi-thronged approach and it's, it's, it, it, it moves in both directions where, you know, we're actively seeking out companies, but companies are also coming to us or being referred. Does the, being the nonprofit, like being the foundation, does that open the door for the blended finance aspect of all this? It certainly does. Yeah. It does. So if you think about it, you know, as blended finance, um, Alpha Mundi Group and Alpha Mundi Foundation are actually a blended. It's not a facility, but the way we operate is blended because we're providing the technical assistance and, you know, concessional loans and other types of blended finance instruments. And then they provide, you know, commercial investments. But again, they do it with a gender lens. So they're not just investing because they want to make a profit. They're also thinking about how they can support gender equity, diversity and inclusion. Both of us working together are actually a blended structure, if you will. Yeah, maybe not even over the last three years, but I guess you know maybe your entire career, right? Let's look at it from a decade or maybe even two. I'm not sure how far you want to go back with the with this question, but what works from this perspective of when you're looking at like developing economies? What has worked from whether it's a data perspective, whether it's investing in certain sectors? And by mean what works, it's like, like you said before, we can't just rely on philanthropic avenues to kind of, whether it's getting generation of people out of poverty, whether it's, 
you know, creating a new energy grid, whether it's getting clean water to, to certain areas around the world. There's a lot of different work that has been done in a lot of different areas. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. one of the most powerful ones is the, the idea of using finance, using business to solve a lot of these issues. Maybe not be, like you said, mm-hmm. the silver bullet, but it can it can help move the last mile, so to speak, like a nonprofit can maybe only do so much on the ground and they need a little bit of the private sector to come in and develop these entrepreneurs, develop job creators, develop these ideas even further. But I guess as you look over the span of your career, what has worked in Latin America? What has worked in Africa? So that's that's a pretty loaded question. I, <laughs> I think that there's not <laughs> there's not a simple answer. Um, different things work for different reasons and in different contexts. And what works in one country won't necessarily work in another, even if they're in the same region. So I think I would just tread a little carefully not to try to present, you know, a, a one solution sure. fits all. But I can kind of tell you a little bit about, you know, what we've seen work at Alpha Mundi Foundation. Um, so again, you know, small organization um, actively operating over the last six years, but we have completed 70 projects. We've worked with 29 SMEs across 12 countries in Africa and Latin America, and our modest interventions have helped these companies raise an additional $35 million. So overall, we put in just under, you know, $3 million. And from that, these companies were then able to raise $35 million in private investment. And they also catalyzed an additional $28 million from other investment uh, vehicles. Um, so that, I think, is, is quite impressive. Impressive. How has that worked? Um, again, we do, we undertake a diagnostic of these companies to understand really where their paper pain points lie, you know, what they need. And then we design um, customized technical assistance projects and work with them to complete this, you know, these over a period of, you know, 18 months or so. And we have seen that on average, these companies have, have had their revenues grow around 46% since receiving our technical assistance. But it's not just about the revenues growing, it's the fact that they're then able to raise private Mm -hmm. um, investment. So I think for me, what this shows is that blended finance does work, can work. Um, It's gotten a lot of criticism, but I think if you structure transactions correctly, and if you provide the right type of assistance early on, then you can help more companies become commercially viable, sustainable in the longer run, and really attractive um, to investors. Do you want to give a little shout out to to any of the the projects or the SMEs that, you know, have have gone through you know your assistance and help, but maybe give like a real world example. Certainly. Maybe even a couple if you if you got certainly. Um, I, I I absolutely would would be delighted to. Um, so I can I can give you a couple examples. Um, and I'll I'll pick from each region. Um, so let me start in Kenya, uh, where we're based at the moment. Um, so Ken Taste uh, produces uh coconut products, so coconut milk, coconut oil, and they came to us a few years ago, and we provided technical assistance, which they utilized to conduct a feasibility study, um, to do product development research, and also to gather gender-based data in order to identify new commercial opportunities and how to better engage uh, women 
suppliers. So, you know, supply, thinking about their supply chains and how they can work with women-owned businesses um, and just generally have a gender lens in their supply chain. So what ended up happening as a consequence of this was that they saw a 2.7x increase in the number of women in their supply chains um, because they were intentional about finding these companies. They also made changes to their own internal policies and were able to secure additional funding further down to implement some additional uh, projects. So this, this is a brand that is actually known in East Africa, and we're really proud that we were able to provide the support. Another interesting company that I can talk about is uh, Sistema Bio, which is a social enterprise. It provides access to innovative biodigester technology. So again, this is around, you know, uh, clean energy, as well as, um, you know, training and financing. Now, we again, providing them with gender smart technical assistance, and ultimately, they were able to double the size of their sales team with female representation, and also increase female representation across the whole company, which ultimately, the, the bottom line is that it did have a positive impact on their profitability as a company. So yeah, there are many other examples that I could uh, share, but those two are just really exciting uh, for us. And we're very proud that we were able to support these companies. Amazing. I want to kind of a couple and then a couple questions here. One is a little bit of a, you know, it's sort of a bigger subject matter that could be an entire episode, but I kind of wanted to get your perspective on it and just taking some, some statistics from your, your site. It says statistics show that women-led companies are more capital efficient, achieve 35% higher ROI, and when supported by investors, encounter 12% greater revenue. Yet the gap still exists yep. when it comes to what women need most to scale their business funding. Only 2.2% of VC funding went to women-led businesses in 2021. I'm sure that mm -hmm. hasn't changed too much, maybe a percent over the last uh, yep. 12 to 24 months. I guess, what does it take to even get that to 10%? I guess maybe what are some of the gaps still in the ecosystem of VC and, and why do you think that number is still so low? Even though I think it's been around, around and conversated about for, for a while now, it still seems to be extremely low. Uh, of course it is. And, you know, this is a, an issue that is global. It's not just mm. in emerging markets. I mean, even in the U.S., yeah. women are still trying to break that glass ceiling. And we're starting to see some regulation around female representation on boards and things like that. So there's still a long way to go. Now, why is this still the case, unfortunately, in 2023? For a variety of reasons. When you think about who controls the capital and who makes the decisions, sure. it's still the old boys club. Yep. And so they're gonna invest in who they know and who they're comfortable with. So if male founders went to business school with a lot of people or they met and developed networks and relationships with people who control resources, it's easy for them to trust them because they've established a rapport, they're part of a network, they know them. It's a low lift for them just to cut them a check. When you don't have access to those types of networks, and women network differently from men anyway, um, but when you don't have access to those types of networks, it's a lot more difficult to break in because for many of these investments, it's by invitation only or by referral. So if I don't know anyone in that circle, I'm never going to get invited right, right. <laughs> to um, to pitch. And you know, it, it, it just makes it all that more difficult. Now, to be fair, 
as an investor, you are also risk averse. So you're not wanting to lose your, your money. Um, so it's easy to make a, an investment decision based on who you're comfortable with and who you know. So I think, you know, um, yes, they could do better, but we can also kind of understand why this has always been the case, which is why it's so important for more women to actually control capital and to be involved in deciding where that capital goes. We need more women making investment decisions, um, sitting on investment committees, being in the C-suite. So that is part of the work that we're also doing um, when we're trying to encourage companies to increase female representation in senior management. It's also to get more women into decision-making power um, positions and where they're able to make decisions around where capital goes. Now, secondly, there's implicit biases that all of us have. And unfortunately, women tend to be judged on their track records. So what they've done, whereas men are judged on their potential. So you might have a woman mm. who has mm. 20 years of experience working in finance and she decides to start a company or to raise a fund. She's never done that specific commercial activity before, but she has 20 years of experience work, working on Wall Street. She is judged as not having experience to run a company because she's never run a company before. Never mind that she's been a finance exec and adding value where she was previously employed. A man with a similar profile who has also worked 20 years on Wall Street, you know, has no clue. In fact, let's even say, you know, heard about crypto, cryptocurrency or blockchain technology <laughs> yesterday yeah. and decided <laughs> over a couple of years with a friend, why don't we start a crypto exchange? They will raise capital well, that's immediately definitely because, happened. <laughs> exactly. I know. And we've seen, we literally have seen that um, in, in the very recent past. So, you know, he, he will raise a lot of money very quickly with no track record either. So that's still a bias that exists. And so part of what we're trying to do through our work is provide the data because ultimately investment decisions like any other major decision that you're taking in life need to be data backed and evidence driven. So you're not just going to invest. I mean, people invest on emotion, but generally those investments don't do too well. <laughs> so you try to have, sure. you know, some data um, to make an informed decision. So what we're trying to do is also create that data that investors can use. So if we're saying that we have a portfolio and our portfolio on average has performed, you know, X times better than other similar types of portfolios because we have adopted a gender lens. It's not just a one-off. You know, we can so we can show a pattern. There's there's a trend to this. And you know, the more data we gather, the more investors, the more, you know, nonprofit organizations who are involved in blended finance who can demonstrate this, then I think the easier it is to then go to market and to sit at the table with an investor to say, it makes sense for you to do this because it's a business, it makes business sense. This ultimately will positively impact your bottom line. It's not just a CSR project that you do. It's not a feel-good project. This makes good business sense. Last question I'll end on. I usually like to ask a little bit about the future. Mm -hmm. When you look at, let's say, the next three to five years for the foundation as, you know, you really you take bold efforts into to funding projects around the world, women around the world. I guess, what are, what are some of the successes and goals that you would like to see achieved in, let's say, the next three to five years? Um, so first of all, it's, it's really scale. So we want to see uh, more of the companies that we support scale. So it's mm -hmm. it's great to start small. 
some point you've got to grow. <laughs> so we want sure. these companies to naturally go from small to medium, from medium to large, um, and not to be stuck in one phase of, you know, the business life cycle. Um, so that to us would be um, success. Um, we also want to see more gender diverse uh, teams running these companies. We want to see more inclusive um, supply chains. We want to see products and services that also cater specifically to the unique needs of, you know, women and youth as well. Um, so this is why we are honing down on our corporate strategy to provide blended finance and we're calling it structured blended finance and being intentional about the types of instruments that we are providing to these companies. So it's concessional loans, um, investment stage grants, technical assistance, um, scaling capital. And all of this is, again, to help more companies become commercially viable and ultimately attractive to private investors in the longer term. We are also committed to helping companies think about greening their operations. We've got one planet and uh, not to get into a sensitive topic, not everybody <laughs> believes that climate change is real, but it is. Uh, and we're seeing the adverse impacts. So we want to be sure that companies are also thinking about sustainability and how they apply that in their operations. So we really are going to be targeting those companies that both want to apply a gender lens, be gender smart and inclusive, and also think about sustainability into their business models. Um, so we've coined a term, gender lens investing for climate, GLIC. We want to see a lot more activity around this. Um, and this is an area that we believe will get a lot more attention going forward. A lot of investors are starting to pay attention to these types of things. So they're thinking about where their dollars are going and not just making investments to make money, but also thinking whether their investments are responsible and if they are contributing ultimately um, to climate change in a positive or negative manner. So for us, these, you know, these areas will be uh, very um, important going forward. Yeah, it's another huge topic that we could spend another whole episode on, but <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be conscious of your time here. Well, thank you so much for your time, Lade. It was amazing conversation. I really, I hope to have you on again, if we can find the time to talk about, you know, go deeper into a lot of these subject matters, because it's a powerful force that could happen if we get these economies at scale, like you said, in areas of the world that, that haven't scaled quite yet, where technology still hasn't Im embedded in the foundation of, of every company across the world. I think once that happens, we're going to see regions around the world sort of really take the next step. And that's what I'm optimistic about because once that happens, then I think we'll see some amazing innovations around the world. And just, I mean, conversations I have with, with friends in Africa, I mean, the young, talented people there, I, I think the world doesn't quite realize <laughs> What's what's happening with with uh, the youth in Africa understanding technology and building products, building businesses? So I think the future is incredibly bright there. So keep up the amazing work and best of luck for to you and the team for for the next decade. I, I agree with you and and thank you so much, Grant. And we're excited and uh, I'm certainly open to coming back and talking more. There's lots for us to discuss and really excited that you're interested in in the work that we do. <laughs>